Welcome to this special edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Shadi Karosh, your Editor-in-Chief. This past month, the medical community said goodbye to one of our best leaders, the Director of the National Institute of Arthritis and Musculoskeletal and Skin Diseases, Dr. Stephen Katz, and a friend and mentor to many of us in dermatology. A few years ago, I was asked by the editors of the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology to interview Dr. Katz about an editorial he had published in the JAD on how the National Institutes of Health set priorities for research funding. It was important to him to explain and make the research funding process accessible, to advocate for patients, to educate and support the development of outstanding physicians and scientists in dermatology, extensions of his stewardship of our field. This month, our team at Dialogues in Dermatology releases this special interview with Dr. Katz in tribute to him. To convey a sentiment that many in the dermatology community share, I feel fortunate to have been able to work with him and simply to have known him. In our efforts to serve patients and the field, we remember Dr. Katz his example, and his guidance. This is Shadi Karosh from the Department of Dermatology at Massachusetts General Hospital. In this Dialogues in Dermatology podcast for the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Stephen Katz, the Director of the National Institute of Arthritis and Musculoskeletal and Skin Diseases at the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Katz is a dermatologist and immunologist. He also served for many years as a Senior Investigator and Chief of the Dermatology Branch at the National Cancer Institute. Dr. Katz, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. For some of our listeners who may be new to the field of dermatology or to the research realm and may not be very familiar with the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, I'd like to open by asking you to explain the role of the National Institute of Arthritis and Musculoskeletal and Skin Diseases, its context within the larger structure of NIH, and about your role as the director. Let's talk about the NIH first. The NIH is the major funder of research in the United States. If one thinks about funding basic research, for example, we fund basic research. Pharmaceutical companies tend to fund much more clinical research. There are other funding agencies in the government, like the Department of Agriculture, Department of Defense, and the National Science Foundation. But for scientific and medical research, we are the major funders with over $30 billion of tax dollars being devoted to a basic and clinical research support. Now, the NIAMS, the Arthritis and Musculoskeletal and Skin Diseases Institute, is one of 27 institutes. Our particular mission is to support research into the causes, treatment, and prevention of arthritis and musculoskeletal and skin diseases, the training of basic and clinical scientists to carry out this research, and the dissemination of information on research progress in these diseases. Some, I should say many, have asked, why are these three groups of diseases together? And one, it's from historical purposes, from where they were in other institutes, and number two, the rationale is the commonality of connective tissues in all of these organ systems. My role as the director of the NIH, I guess it depends on what your perspective is, but my role is actually to make final funding decisions and to organize our priorities in terms of what research we will and cannot support. There is a lot of research that is being done that we're not able to support because of our limited resources. 
but we get many applications that are outstanding that we just can't support them. So those decisions are ultimately made by me with tremendous input from my staff, from the extramural community, as we'll be talking about, and also from my advisory council. In your editorial in the JAD, you discuss how research funding priorities are set at the National Institutes of Health and specifically at the NIAMS. But first, let's talk for a moment about the grant review process. There are a number of institutes and centers within NIH, and I understand that before grant applications reach them, they first go through the Center for Scientific Review, or CSR, which assigns them to a study section where they are then scored and directed to other centers within NIH. Is that correct? Exactly. Within the Center for Scientific Review, there is a division called the Division of Receipt and Referral, and they have a listing of the types of research that are being done in each of the institutes, and they make assignments, and they will sometimes make only primary assignments, but sometimes when there's a really gray area, they'll make a primary and secondary assignment of an application. So if one institute doesn't or can't pay uh, to support that application, and it does very well, and another institute is interested in it, the secondary assignment, they will then support that particular institute. Some numbers that might be of interest are that about 75% of the applications that are sent into the NIH are sent in and are reviewed by the Center for Scientific Review. And that accounts for about 50% of the dollars that are spent from the NIH budget. Now, you might ask, why is this discordance? Because within the institutes, we also have study sections. So the Center for Scientific Review has hundreds of study sections that are standing study sections. But we also have study sections within our NIAMS. And we have those study sections particularly for three or four things. One is for our training grants and for our trainees. Two is for our career awardees. Three is for our small grants. Four is for our clinical studies because we want to make sure there's depth and breadth in reviewing clinical studies, and we want to make sure that the reviewers have a concept whether supporting those clinical studies will make a difference in clinical practice. So with all of these different study sections, both within the Center for Scientific Review and within the NIAMS, is it possible that a grant application coming from a dermatologist, for example, would already have a score and thus an assessment of its quality before it even reached the NIAMS or that it might not even be directed to the NIAMS? Absolutely. Excellent question. In fact, I would say that I've never looked at the actual percentages, but the NIAMS probably supports only a proportion perhaps 50% or less, of all of the skin biology and skin disease research that's being supported at the NIH. Let me give you an example. Melanoma. Metastatic melanoma is supported almost totally by the National Cancer Institute. In fact, their support for metastatic melanoma may account for about 20% of our total budget because they support metastatic melanoma to the tune of $100, $150 million a year. 
And there are many other areas, for example, atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, basic studies that are being supported by other institutes. So as you say, an application that comes in, and let's use the term dermatologist and skin biologist, because we, I know that the public doesn't really care whether it's a dermatologist who does the research or a skin biologist. They don't really care who does it. But if they have atopic dermatitis, they just want somebody to work on it, whether it's an allergist, doesn't really matter. So we look at it the same way. We don't care as long as it's outstanding research. It comes to us, and it is percentiled against all of the other study sections. And that's a very important thing because some study sections may be perceived as being easier, some harder, but in fact, they're all percentiles. And then we actually look at all the applications to determine which ones we will support. Usually we support up to a certain percentile level across the board in both skin disease, rheumatic disease, musculoskeletal disease, bone disease, muscle disease, etc. And those outstanding applications do get supported. But we also support applications that go beyond the so-called pay line. We're very transparent in this. So if you go to our website, and investigators know this, you go to our website, you can see exactly what we are and what we are not funding. We put up what our pay lines are, and at the end of the year, it usually is a few months later because all the data isn't always in, but for example, about three months after the fiscal year is over, we have on our website what we did the year before. So how many applications did we fund beyond our so-called pay line? And for clinical studies, for example, we don't have a pay line. For applications over $500,000, we don't really have a pay line. We discuss each of those individually and decide on their merits with strong input from the study sections and also strong input from our advisory council. Let me just say that our advisory council is comprised of 18 people, 12 people from the scientific community, and six from the voluntary and lay community. So when I say from the voluntary and lay community, they may represent organizations, or they may represent individuals who are affected by certain diseases, or who may be parents or children or siblings of people who have certain diseases. And they are meant to be there not to advocate for that particular disease because it's impossible for all the diseases to be advocated for, but they're meant to be broad thinkers to bring a patient's perspective to the table. You mentioned that regardless of who the investigator might be and that regardless of a specific topic or disease-related factors, that priority is given to the most outstanding research proposals. For all the young academicians who may be listening and may be just embarking on the grant writing process, could you please explain for us what constitutes an outstanding proposal? Another excellent question. Well, those are proposals that are judged most likely to move forward our basic or clinical understanding of skin biology and skin disease. These are called scientific opportunities and represent, in my view, and are in line with other NIH research funding policies, the best stewardship of tax dollars. Are we always right? No, we're not always right, but it's a prediction of what we will get from the investment. And that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about a return on investment. In basic research, there's a much 
longer lag period between the investment and what we get from the investment. But these are important investments in the basic in understanding the basic biology with regard to skin and with regard to the basic investment in fundamentals of uh, skin biology. So now we come to the question of how the NIAMS prioritizes research funding. There have been some papers in the literature suggesting that research funding should be more population-based or prioritized according to disease burden rather than an opportunity model that would favor more programmatic priorities. What role does disease burden play in determining research priorities? Disease burden plays a role, but disease burden is very hard to assess. Is disease burden death? Well, it's really not a disease burden if someone dies quickly. There's no burden to it. It's a loss of activity, the loss of life, obviously, that we miss depending on at what age it occurs. Are we talking about chronicity? Are we talking about quality of life? Are we talking about financial loss? Are we talking about societal loss? So, for example, people who are affected by drug abuse, their lives not only are affected, but the lives around them. And that's true for many diseases. So disease burden is very hard to assess. And we don't, nor do other institutes, make a commitment a priori to say, we're going to fund this amount of money in this disease and this amount of money in this disease. I'll reiterate what I said in that commentary in the JAD. And that is, we fund the two highest priorities that we have are funding the most outstanding research proposals that we receive. That's number one. And number two is investing in the future by research, supporting prospective scientists, exploring research careers, and by funding early stage researchers. So, for example, if we don't invest in training the next generation of scientists, we won't have a next generation of scientists. So we have to invest... And we have to invest a fair amount because we don't know who's going to stay and who's not going to stay. In the area of skin biology and skin disease, we have many more PhD scientists nowadays than we did before. And fortunately, it's an area that's very attractive to people because of our accessibility. And I believe it's also because so much has been learned in skin biology, for example, in terms of oncology, in terms of immunology, and other areas that really new information sort of begets other questions that, that can be asked with greater precision. So beyond those two priorities, that is funding the most outstanding research and funding the future scientists that are going to be delving into skin biology and skin disease research, we also fund other Priorities. In other words, what is the public health need? Is it uh, related to an understudied area of disease? What about rare diseases? And I'll get into that in a minute. Is the application actually mission relevant or is it not relevant to what the mission of our institute is? And is it affordable? Sometimes we get outstanding applications that are so expensive, we can't afford to do that to the exclusion of other applications. And for clinical trials, we have added the, the caveat or the requirement that it needs to, at least in the eyes of our reviewers and our counsel, 
and our staff to yield results that will change clinical practice. So it might be a very well-written application, but if it's not meant to, to yield really important clinical research data, we will not uh, support it. Uh, when it comes to rare diseases, I think that we all know, anybody who's listening, anybody who's a dermatologist knows that we've learned a tremendous amount about rare diseases from fundamental uh, research. Number one, not only have we benefited those people with the rare diseases, but number two, understanding those the mechanisms involved in disease in patients, people who have rare diseases, has, have, has helped considerably uh, people who have more common diseases. Can I give you a few examples? Please. So those examples I would give, one that comes to mind immediately is xeroderma pigmentosum. We've invested a lot of money in the fundamentals of xeroderma pigmentosum. And you should know that investment comes not only from the extramural funding of xeroderma pigmentosum, but also for many years, as you said, I was head of the Cancer Institute in the dermatology branch, and still now in the dermatology branch, there's considerable research being done in xeroderma pigmentosum. So it's a very rare disease characterized, as most people know, by an extraordinary sensitivity to sunlight that results in the development of skin cancer at a very early age. From these studies, considerable amount has been learned about DNA repair mechanisms in many of the more common forms of cancer. Another example that I would give is that we now almost take for granted the use of the anti-TNFs in uh, patients with uh, immunological disease, uh, not only psoriasis, but arthritis, ulcerative colitis, uh, regional enteritis, etc. Well, those studies came from the fundamental understanding of molecules that are released when people lose muscle when they are dying of cancer. So the molecule cachectin was discovered many years ago at Rockefeller using NIH funds to support that research. And ultimately, it was known that cachectin is not only a factor in producing cachexia, but also a pro-inflammatory factor that has an effect in psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, and other diseases. And that's how the anti-TNFs were developed. So studying rare disease is a very important component of what we do as well. So you're saying that even for diseases where others may not see their applications to a larger population, their overlapping mechanisms may actually yield fruit in larger ways that people may not see immediately. Absolutely. So you mentioned programmatic priorities, that priority might be given to proposals that address critical public health needs, for example, those relating to understudied areas or diseases. So if grant scoring were close to a cutoff or a relatively understudied condition, like a rare disease, as you mentioned, or other dermatologic diseases that might not have been funded for a long time, such as keloids or vitiligo, for example, could a grant be funded for programmatic reasons? Absolutely. We have a process which does not involve the applicant because uh, otherwise everybody would make a plea for their own application. But now we have uh, three outstanding uh, professionals who deal directly with our uh, skin diseases program, and uh, I know uh, more than a little bit about skin myself. So between us, uh, we can identify what the areas of understudy are and what the needs are. And uh, basically, we can, 
through the nomination process by these program directors uh, who are all either PhDs or MD-PhDs, uh, they will nominate uh, certain applications for what we call a selective pay process, which is beyond the pay line. We don't support very many of them, but we do support anywhere from 5 to 12% of our budget, depending on the year, maybe 6 to 12% of our budget goes for funding applications beyond our pay line. And this is certainly one of the considerations that's taken uh, into play. So for the NIAMS these days, what might be some of the reasons that a grant might be moved to the funding range? There are many reasons. It's not only in skin disease, it's in many other areas. Uh, For example, one laboratory in the country or the world that's studying a problem that is important and its public health importance, uh, we may fund that application if it's just beyond the pay line. If there are applications that are uh, very exciting that we think, after looking at it, have uh, more promise than the study section thinks, uh, we will then fund it. On the other hand, there are applications occasionally, I would say it's not a common occurrence, occasionally where the study section thinks that the application should be within a fundable pay line where we don't think so. And we disagree with that. And then we ask our council to look into it in some depth and we get some outside consultation as well. So not going into specifics in terms of areas of research, I think these areas change from time to time. So for example, for many years, there was very little research on vitiligo. There was very little research on itching, for example. And most of the research that was being funded on itching, itching, which is so fundamental to so many of our diseases, very few applications were coming in on itching. And the major funding was being done by the Neurology Institute. And I would say that has changed because of some of the fundamental research that's been identified and new pathways that we see in the the itch pathways. So scientific opportunity is built by knowledge. And another example, and I will tell you in the late 70s when George Stingle came to my lab and started studying Langerhans cells, he was studying in Austria, he was starting to study uh, epidermal Langerhans cells. Well, there were one or two papers in the literature. Now, uh, the literature is replete with studies about Langerhans cells, their importance in not only immunity, but in tolerance, etc., and the various types of epidermal dendritic cells are being elucidated. But that's what's called scientific opportunity. One discovery sort of promotes another and promotes other types of questions. I see. And how is the patient perspective incorporated when setting research priorities? The patient perspective is included in almost all of our deliberations. So when we review grants, at least within our institute, particularly in our clinical review groups, we almost always have someone from the lay community who is there to provide their perspective. We have six of our 18 members of our advisory council who are there to provide the perspective of the patient. When we have roundtable discussions or workshops within the institute to talk about an organ system or to talk about a certain type of disease, we invariably have someone from the lay community who is affected or whose family member is affected to provide 
that patient perspective. So we all are grounded in the importance of having that patient perspective. Because as you know, that's easily lost and we don't want it to be lost. So we have a particularly, we particularly stress that particular point. And aside from articles like this one, what are other ways that the NIAMS communicates its priorities to researchers and to the public to ensure transparency? Once a month, I provide a letter that talk about issues that are important that we are thinking about. For example, some months ago, uh, I talked about a new program that we had called the STAR program. And that STAR program is meant to expand an early stage investigators program from a project to a program. And it's done with a supplement. So that is to enhance a program. I also talk about what we're doing with regard to training programs, what we're looking for in training programs. I also, in these monthly letters, talk about what we expect from clinical research. I also talk about the the basis for funding research, the importance of of reproducibility and premise. What is the premise of the proposal? Is it well-founded? Is it not well-founded? We're not looking for, for not well-founded premises in order to support uh, research. And this is something that actually is being promoted throughout the NIH, reproducibility and premise having a stronger, stronger base than it's had in the past. Dr. Katz, I want to thank you for providing these explanations and important education about the NIAMS for our listeners. What do you feel are the most important messages in your commentary for listeners who are not researchers? Well, I think one thing they should know is that there are many institutes at the NIH and many agencies of the government that are supporting research in skin biology and skin disease. So I mentioned the National Cancer Institute. I mentioned the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease that does much of the fundamental immunology research that yields important information to go to the next step in diseases that we deal with, the immunobullous diseases, pemphigus, atopic dermatitis, vitiligo, scleroderma, etc. The Diabetes and Digestive Disease and Kidney Institute that's concerned with kidney disease. Uh, When we look at uh, lupus and supporting lupus research, which we do a lot of, we also look to the NIDDK for uh, support in that area. For new technologies, we look for the uh, Bioimaging and Bioengineering uh, Institute. In areas where we have comorbidities like psoriasis, uh, we look to the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute or the National Institute of Mental Health for support in certain types of comorbidities. So that's a message that everybody should have because it's more than just one institute that's supporting this type of research. And the divisions between our institutes, although they are well-defined, they become gray when it comes to looking at diseases that cut across institutes. Thank you, Dr. Katz, for speaking with us today. And thank you also for the important service and contributions that you have given and continue to give to our field. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. Thanks very much, Shadi, for your incisive questions.